Good morning. I'm John Matthews. And uh, let's read together 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 22. That's 1 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing which, in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you should suffer for doing what, what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that words of truth and power this morning would prevail over unbelief. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see what things are clear, what things we are to hold to and rejoice in. Lord, I pray that you would also open our eyes to what things are mysterious and we are to uh, leave in your hands waiting for the day in which all is made clear. Lord, we pray that you would uh, make us a people so thankful in our hearts to be here, to hear your word, to have fellowship with one another, and may we all walk away trusting Jesus, loving him more for having encountered him in his word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. If you know me, you know that I enjoy board games. Okay, you know that about me? I don't enjoy all board games. I'd rather watch paint dry than play Monopoly, just so you know. The, the games I tend to enjoy most are the ones that create unique human interactions with one another. I, I like games that get people talking or interacting like they normally wouldn't. I enjoy games that make you think, that are full of interesting decisions to make uh, all along the way. I've always enjoyed board games since childhood, but over the last five years, I've really dove in headfirst, and I've become a researcher as well as a lover of board games. I research before I buy. I want to know what makes this game tick. I want to discover what kind of people will enjoy a certain type of game. I do believe there's a game for everyone. If you don't like board games, there is a game for you still. You may not know this, about me, but every Friday morning, 
I teach a class of high school students at the King's Co-op, and the class I teach them is called Introduction to Board Game Design. Uh, I love it. It's the class I literally have to do zero preparation for. I can just walk in the past five years of experience, start writing on the board, here's all the things we're learning today, kids. And it's, it's great. I love it. In my research, I discovered that for over the 4,000 new games published just last year, 4,000 just last year, there are only a handful, a small handful of new game mechanisms. Game mechanism. What's that? A game mechanism is, what, is the thing that actually makes something into a game. For example, one game mechanism found in Monopoly, if you're familiar with Monopoly, and Trivial Pursuits, and Shoots and Ladders, is dice rolling for movement. Everyone's familiar with that. You roll the dice, you move that many spaces. It's probably my least favorite of any game mechanism, rolling the dice to see how far you move. Uh, but th- th- there are others in modern games that are so much better, many more, far better, far more interesting. Better game mechanisms would be something like hand management. You have a hand of cards, and you have to be clever at how you play those cards. Or worker placement. You have workers that you, send, you put on the board to accomplish various actions. Or secret objectives. That's fun. Where other players have to figure out what you're up to. Or player powers, where each player can do something unique. Only they can do it in the game. There are two game mechanisms that I think illustrate pretty well what we find here in 1 Peter in our first Peter passage today. I'm going to deal with one of those very quickly because I want to spend the bulk of the time reflecting on the other. The first quicker one is this. The end game reveal. The end game reveal. There are games that are built around this big end game reveal. Who was the secret trader? You find out in the end. Who what was the secret code word? What really happened on the night of the murder? You find that out at the end of the game. There's a big in-game reveal. Uh, One of the board games that we have that does that very well is called Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective. We played this game recently with Larry and Becky and Heather Roach, along with our international friends. We all gathered on November the 5th, which is, if you're English, you know that's bonfire night. Remember, remember the 5th of November? Bond, uh, was it gunpowder, treason, and plot? There was a plot to blow up Parliament on the 5th of November that they stopped it. And so every night you build a bonfire in England on November the 5th. It rained on November the 5th here, so we built a fire indoors and solved a mystery. Seemed appropriate on that night. Uh, in the game, Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detectives, you try to solve a murder, as Sherlock does. Uh, and you have a map of London. You can go anywhere in London. There's a directory. Uh, you go and talk to people. In this specific game, there's also a historic house. All the rooms of the house laid out. You could go talk to people in the house, discover what they knew. And at the game's end, Sherlock Holmes enters into the room and reveals to you how he cracked the case. Usually, it takes him about five steps, and it usually takes us about 25, 30 steps, and so instantly you feel like, oh, it's how, how clever he is. Uh, you're always tempted to reevaluate how smart you think you are, because all the clues you missed now seem so obvious when Sherlock comes in and tells you what's going on. Of course, that's what that thing meant. 
Why didn't we see that before? Why didn't we question that guy? Why didn't we make that connection? It's so obvious now. A large part of the charm of games like that is the big in-game reveal. The one that makes you say, oh, of course, of course. This board game mechanism is really helpful to keep in mind as we look at the end of 1 Peter chapter 3. Because I have to confess, I'm really not sure I get what Peter is saying at the end of chapter 3. I need a big in-game reveal to understand all this days of Noah business, the proclamation of the spirits. I'm not sure that I get it. And I'm not alone in feeling this way. Here's what Martin Luther wrote about this verse, uh, verses 19 and 20, uh, 500 years ago. Martin Luther said this. He said, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. I have no idea. I have no idea what he means. Martin Luther and I stand in need of Peter to come out like Sherlock Holmes, and explained how all these things at the end of chapter 3 fit together. I think we will get that one day. I think, and I think I probably have worked out the answer down to three guesses. I, I want you to know that those three guesses, I can tell you what those three guesses are, but... Because they are guesses, I'm not going to do it now. If you want to know my three guesses, come to me in our lunch. Uh, come to me at the Thanksgiving meal. I will tell you my three guesses about this passage. I think one of them is right, but I have no degree of certainty as to which one is right. So I'm going to stick this morning to what I know and to what's clear and leave it to Peter one day to walk into the room and give us the end game reveal as to what he means. I'm sure we'll say on that day, ah, of course. That's, that's the only thing it could have meant. But I don't know what it means today. So we're going we're gonna to leave the end of chapter 3 alone and look at what's really clear. So if you came in here this morning expecting a long sermon on the days of Noah and Jesus' proclamation to spirits, you're going to be disappointed. I, I myself am waiting for the end game reveal on that one. This is really the most unclear passage, I think, in the entire New Testament. So we are all, anyone who says they know what it means don't, doesn't really, for sure. So we're all waiting for the in-game reveal, whether we think we've got it figured out or not. Okay, that's, that's the first board game me- mechanism that's helpful here, the in-game reveal. Here's the second. A game mechanism that has really caught on lately is, called, is one that's called bag building. Have you heard of this? Bag building. Uh, I don't own one of these games yet, but I do have a birthday coming up, January 1st. I'm going to be like Keith Pugh and just put my birthday before you all the time. It's coming. Uh, we, I, I don't have a game like this, but I'm familiar with it because I do my research. With bag building, each player has their own bag in a game, and it's filled with things, filled with to- tokens. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. The good ones will help you when you draw them out. They'll help you. The bad ones, of course, will hurt you in the game. It's called bag building because as the game goes on, you will be adding more and more things into your bag while trying to avoid the bad things that are there. 
The reason bag-wielding games are catching on is because they're filled with these very intense and exciting moments. Every time you reach into the bag, you have no idea what's coming out. It's exciting when against all odds, you pull out that great token that just gives you a fantastic turn. You know, fist pump, it's, it's that kind of moment. Or when against all odds, you reach into the bag and pull out that one bad token, the one you did not want to get. You pull it out and it ruins all your cleverly laid plans. And there's that oh no moment. My kids know this, playing board games with me, that oh no moment when the hands go to the head like that. Oh no, that didn't just happen. Bag building games work because they are a mix of good and bad. They're a mixed bag. Church, Peter tells us in our passage today that life is a mixed bag. Life is a mixed bag of good and bad. You, as a person, are a mixed bag. And so is everyone else. The Bible portrays life as a mixed bag of the good and the bad. The bad, the Bible explains, comes from as a result of the fall. Where mankind, thinking we knew better, rejected the good by rejecting the God who made us to know him. Sin enters into the world like a foreign invading force, and it mars everything it touches. Because of sin, all creation has been subjected to the curse of futility and death, so that now even the best human achievements are still tainted by sin, by self-centered motives. But... While the effects of the fall are felt everywhere, not everything is bad, right? Not everything is bad. The world under a curse is still a pretty amazing place, full of much that is good and beautiful. Yes, the painting is marred now, but you can still see patches of the original beauty. The building is graffitied now, but you can still appreciate aspects of the original design. Imagine just how great it was before it was vandalized. God's image in mankind is defaced, but it is not wholly gone. It's just that we are a mixed bag now. All of us, the best of us and the worst. Think about it. Even the worst. Nearly everyone who gets charged in court with some horrible crime can produce a character witness who testifies how kind and lovely the accused person was to them. You've probably had people in your life who did good things for you, who made a positive impact, but there was also some hurt. There was also some manipulation. There were also moments when they did not act like a friend. How do we explain that? There was good, but there was also bad. In simplest terms, we say, people are a mixed bag. We're a mixed bag. The Bible says we're a mixed bag of the image of God, with all that capacity for good and relational kindness, but we also possess that natural bent away from God with sin tainting even our best works. 
and motivations. This is true of all people. Even when you embrace Christ, you are still a mixed bag. It's true that as your heart has been increasingly won by the gospel, you're adding more and more good things into your bag, the fruit of the Spirit. You reach in and you pull out love and peace and joy and kindness. That's true, but in this life, we never eradicate all the bad. Often, when you least expect it, you reach into the bag of your heart and you pull out something nasty, something bad. Where did this junk come from? Why did I respond that way? For example, my wife Lynn may unintentionally say something that hurts me. And out of my bag, instead of pulling patience or gentleness or forgiveness, sometimes I pull bitterness. Sometimes I pull sullenness. Sometimes I pull a desire to hurt back like I've been hurt. Why is that still happening? It's because we are a mixed bag. Life is still a mixed bag. One of the good things that people are continually drawing from in their bag and don't even realize it is a thing God gives to everyone. Something that's called common grace. Do you know about common grace? Common grace is different from saving grace. God shows a special saving grace to all those who bow the knee to Jesus as Savior and King. That's the grace that makes us part of God's family. It's special. But in everyone's bag who has ever lived, God has lavishly poured out common grace. Grace is, by definition, getting what we don't deserve. And don't we all get a lot of that? Everyone. Getting what we don't deserve. Just ask Jesus, what do we deserve? Jesus, tell us, what do we deserve? And he will tell you something shocking. Remember, Jesus was asked about the Galileans who Pilate had killed, and their blood was mixed with their sacrifices. And he said, don't suppose these people were the greatest sinners, greater sinners than others. They weren't. You're all the same. But I tell you, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then Jesus brought up the tower that fell and killed those 18 people in Jerusalem. And he said, don't suppose they were the worst. You're all in the same boat together. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You understand what Jesus is saying? None of us deserve to see tomorrow. We all deserve a sudden, violent end, a traitor's end, because we've all committed acts of cosmic treason, after all. But it is grace that God does not give us what we deserve. Every breath given to every person in the world today is a gift from God, a gift of his common grace. The fact that we have modern medicine. And can build skyscrapers that don't fall down on us are all examples of God's common grace. That an artist can paint beautiful things, that a musician can comp- compose music, that filmmakers can tell compelling stories are all due to the same thing God's common grace. The good things in life, in our mixed bag, are not our due. We didn't earn them, they are all gracious gifts. 
gracious gifts from the God who causes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. God is continually pouring out good things on people who refuse to recognize it or thank him for it, even on a day like this week, Thanksgiving. One of those good things, one of those acts of common grace is found in verse 13. Look with me, chapter 3, verse 13. Peter says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Who's there to harm you if you prove zealous for doing what is good? Here's an example of God's common grace. That this is normal in a fallen world. No one seeks to punish you when you eagerly do good. Normally, people recognize good. And they approve of it. I say normally, but it's really God's grace that makes that normal. We really have no idea how bad things can get. I remember back to 2005, Hurricane Katrina hits New Orleans. We're all watching, if you're alive then, we were watching the footage. People looting gun shops. And as rescue helicopters are flying in, they're shooting at the helicopters. And we're like, what is going on? Why? And we see it. Government is meant to act like an agent of God's common grace, restraining evil within human hearts. And, but when that's removed, if God were to pull back the elements of his common grace, we get glimpses into what's really there in our hearts. Far too quickly, it's Lord of the Flies time, right? God is kind to hold back evil. But he is also kind to remove his common grace from time to time so that we get a shocking dose of human sinfulness without him. Where evil is promoted and good is punished. But normally, God exercises his common grace in the world that makes this true. Verse 13, who is there to harm you? if you prove zealous for what is good? The normal answer is no one. But, verse 14, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Normally, people won't hurt you for doing good. They won't harm you for doing what's right. But life is a mixed bag. And sometimes you will suffer for doing good. When you do suffer, however, Peter says, know this. You are blessed. You are blessed. You are blessed in spite of the hurt done to you. And you are blessed because of the hurt done to you. Think about this. As a Christian, when you do good and you suffer for it, You are blessed in spite of it. You are blessed in spite of the way the suffering makes you naturally think and feel. We naturally think and feel like Job's friends when suffering comes our way. Emotionally, it feels like I did good, like Job. I did good. I did did everything right. But it only brought me suffering. It only brought me pain. Therefore, God, he must be against me. Because it sure feels like I'm living under a curse instead of a blessing. Peter says to us here, don't be fooled into thinking that way. Don't be fooled. The exact opposite is true. 
Suffering is not a sign of God's abandonment or a notice that you're doing something wrong. You are in a state of blessing in spite of all the appearances to the contrary, Peter says. In spite of all your suffering, you are blessed. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus said. They will be blessed with everlasting comfort. We are in a blessed state in spite of unjust suffering, but we are also blessed because of unjust suffering. Peter will say in the next chapter, if you flip over a page, chapter 4, verse 12, he will say, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree you share in the suffering of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of Christ's glory you may rejoice with exaltation. Your unjust suffering now will be a cause for your rejoicing with exaltation later. The, the two things are connected. Because you bore up under unjust injustice during this life, you will have all the more cause to be overjoyed when the king comes again at the return of Christ. Again, Jesus says, blessed are you when people persecute you. Say all kinds of evil against you falsely because of me. Why? You're blessed. Why? Because your reward in heaven is great. It's great. Instead of feeling like God has abandoned you, Peter calls you to feel God's smiling face upon you. He calls you to rejoice in your suffering. He calls you to rejoice and not to fear. Do you see that? Verse 14. Uh, you're blessed. Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Jesus says in Luke 12, verse 4, My friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. Jesus says, don't fear their threats. The worst they can do to you is dispatch you straight to heaven. Rather, fear God. The only one worthy of fear is the one who is on your side. Or rather, through Christ, you are on his side. God would have you free this morning of all your fear. Do not fear. But this can only happen as we find our security in him. And that's what we see in verse 15. As we do verse 15, verse 15 says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. You can only conquer your fear through a confidence in Christ. Do you see that connection? Don't be afraid, verse 15. How do you do it? Verse 14, how do you do it? Verse 15, you sanctify Christ through a confidence in Christ as your Lord and Savior. Try as you might, you cannot push fear out unless you replace it with something greater. Something must be more powerful. Something must be more real to you than your fear of others, than your fear of suffering. Peter says, this is it, verse 15. This is what should be more real. 
but sanctify, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. Only Jesus is big enough to conquer our hearts and thereby conquer our fears. If Christ is for us, who can stand against us? A lot of people can. A lot of people can be against us, for sure. But we have sworn allegiance to the king who will win the day in the end. So, we can let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, but what? God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. He wins the day. No one can stand against this king. As we increasingly enthrone Jesus as king in our hearts, our old fears begin to lose their control over us. And we see more and more these kinds of opportunities. Verse 15, as we sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts and throne him there, what happens? We're always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Peter calls us to live a life that demands a gospel explanation. Do you see that? Live a life that demands a gospel explanation, where people look at you and they scratch their heads asking, what's going on there? What's going on? They see you acting with integrity, and yet your boss is riding you for it. They see you, and maybe they're not very surprised by how your boss is acting, but how you're acting, continuing to love and forgive in response, that really intrigues them. Why are you doing that? How can you do that? They see your absence of fear, your joy in suffering, and it makes them ask the question, what do you have that I don't? What are you believing that I'm not? These are easy opportunities for us, but they're also easy opportunities to give shallow answers. You ever been there in that that moment, and just, I've, I've blown my fair share of these moments, just gospel opportunities. You know, why are you doing that? Why are you living like that? And you just kind of brush it off. You deflect. Oh, it's nothing. It, that really didn't bother me. I'm just a laid-back person. You know, we, we, can, we can lose these opportunities. We can lose them through these polite deflections. When the only answer that really explains how I can rejoice in times of suffering is my hope in Jesus Christ. Let me tell you about him. Let me tell you about a hope that changes how I see betrayal. That changes how I handle the bad in this mixed bag world we live in. Often, only a gospel answer makes sense of why we're doing what we're doing. And responding the way we're responding. So let's give people that. Let's push aside the polite deflections and give people the real answer they need to hear. Peter says, in order for us to do that, it'll take some preparation. Look again at verse 15. He says, always being ready. You gotta be ready, you gotta be prepared. Preparation. 
usually involves what? Practice. Practice. We all need practice bringing Jesus into normal, everyday conversations. Where do we get that practice? Tell you what, it begins here. It begins here. This community is to be the safe place to practice, to practice bringing Jesus into your casual conversations with one another, for you to practice applying the gospel to real-life situations and struggles together. We've got to grow proficient talking about Jesus among ourselves before we're prepared to give a gospel answer to unbelievers around us. That's why I encourage you to make the most of your time here on Sundays by interacting with one another, by hanging out afterwards, by coming early for small groups, for Sunday school, by coming on our Wednesdays to Wednesday feast days to practice interacting with the Word and applying the gospel around a table with others. While you're among family here, take hold of the opportunity to practice bringing Jesus into the normal ebb and flow of conversations so that you'll be better prepared to give an answer to others out there because you've already done it here. Schedule a meetup with someone for coffee. Talk about real life, real life problems with another Christian and observe how they bring Jesus into those situations and into that conversation and learn from it. We can learn a lot from one another. And together, we can create a culture where it is normal and natural to talk about Jesus all the time. All the time. If we can't talk this way with one another, we won't be prepared to talk this way with the outsider. The outsider to the Christian community who desperately needs to hear about Jesus, the good news about what he's done. We need one another, church, We need one another because the gospel is like a new language. You ever learn a language? The gospel is like a new language, a new language that you have to practice if you want to become fluent in it. You need to know the gospel message, the ins and outs of it, so that you can communicate it competently to people who don't know anything about it. Thankfully, though, Both children and baby Christians can still communicate before mastering their language. You know that? Children can still communicate before they master everything. Christians can still communicate. Don't walk away from a gospel opportunity because you think you're not fluent enough in the gospel. Like with any language, it takes getting in there and messing up before you realize what you ought to say. That was my big strategy in France with French is I would just get in there and make a big mess of everything so my kids would be forced to speak on my behalf. He really means this. This is really what he's asking for. Uh, But that's the way you learn, isn't it? It's the way you learn. And in gospel conversations with other people, that's the way you learn. You make a mess of it many times. And you learn from that. This is what I should say. This is how I should respond instead. So don't be afraid. This is how we learn the new language of the gospel and apply it to all life. Peter says here that the gospel is a message that we need to be prepared to share. But that message also comes with a certain manner 
It's not just a message, there's a manner. Look at verse 15 again. It says, we're to give a, give a defense to everyone who asks to give an account, you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. It's possible for our manner to speak louder than the words of our message. You know that? I'm sure you've seen that to be the case. Perhaps our words were true, but if our manner is condescending or self-righteous or embarrassed or fearful, very few people will hear what we have to say. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God might grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Paul says that God is the one who wins the argument in the end. He's the one who turns the lights on. God grants them repentance. God's in charge of how the message is received. But that doesn't mean that our manner can be whatever we want it to be. Didn't excuse bad manners here. Paul says no. He says we must not be quarrelsome, but kind. We must be patient when we're wrong. With gentleness we correct those who are opposed to the truth. Peter says that this happens both with our words as well as with our lives. Look again, verse 15. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, verse 16, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Both our manner of speech and our manner of life are to be marked by gentleness and goodness. The way we talk and the way we live should make it self-evident that those who slander us are mistaken. They're in the wrong. They're wrong and our lives make that obvious to those who observe it. Because in a mixed bag world, we will be slandered. But we know this, Peter says, one day, those who mischaracterize and falsely accuse you will all be put to shame. You may see it happen in this life now, or you may not. But ultimately, it will happen. Remember what Peter said in chapter 2, verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they, will, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There is a day coming in which every right will be wrong, every wrong will be righted, every mischaracterized thing, every slander will be seen in its true light. Vindication is coming for everything that was unjust and untrue. One day God will draw back the curtain and sin's deception will be removed. Then those who slander you will feel shame for what they've done but they'll also give God glory for what you did. That's what Peter says. Let me just for a second press pause here, though. What if you're reading these verses and thinking, that's great, but my life is a long way from looking like this. When people speak ill of me, 
they're usually right. <laughs> what do I do if I don't have a good conscience? If I don't have good behavior in Christ that Peter talks about here? If that's you, what do you do? You tell me. What do you do in response to any shortcoming? You repent, right? You repent. To the extent your failures affect others, to that same, same extent you own it. And you repent of them. And guess what? It's by leading the way in both repentance and good behavior that we make the gospel of Jesus known. We get ahead of the slander by owning our mistakes, by owning our evil and the hurt that we've caused, and then by seeking forgiveness. Better than anyone else, we know that, we're in a, that we are a mixed bag people, living in a mixed bag world. We own it and we repent when we pull from our bag things out that are bad. And that oftentimes comes as something surprisingly refreshing for people to own their mistakes and publicly repent. Especially in a world where everyone tries to think of themselves as being a good person with very little bad in their own personal bag. If you are not a Christian here today, I hope that you can see how becoming a Christian ought to make you a realist when it comes to life. A realist about people and about life while also giving you an indestructible hope. Something that puts a smile on your face toward the future. Let's end today by looking at verse 17. And I want to give one clarification. Up to this point, I've been saying life is a mixed bag. And people are a mixed bag. But that image, life is a mixed bag, could sound like I'm saying life is a random mix of good and bad. A random mix. Oftentimes... That's the way we perceive life. It can feel like that to us sometimes. But verse 17 reminds us that life is not random. Good and evil do not occur by blind chance. Why? Because God is in control. Look at verse 17. For it is better if God should will it so. That's a huge phrase. It is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. When life feels like a random draw out of a bag, remember verse 17. And also remember Proverbs 16, verse 33. The dice is cast in the lap, but what? It's every decision is from the Lord. There isn't a better way to illustrate random chance than this biblical image. Board gamers know it. You roll the dice, there's nothing more random than that. But the scripture says, you roll the dice, God's still in charge. He's still in charge. When life feels like a blind draw out of a mixed bag, remember that it's not. You have a good father who's in control. When it feels like your life rides on the whim of a bad boss or an angry supervisor, remember 
Proverbs 21, 1, that the king's heart is like channels of water in the Lord's hands. He turns it wherever he wishes. Your boss may be reaching into the bag of his heart for his response, and it's a blind reach for him, but the Lord can guide that hand. So, don't be anxious for anything. Trust in your Father. And guess what will start happening when you do? People will start asking you about this great hope that you have. How could you keep your cool in that meeting? Why aren't you so frustrated by all the roadblocks you're hitting with that project? Well, let me tell you. Let me tell you. And then give a gospel explanation. Life may be a mixed bag of good and bad for now, but it is not a random draw. God is in control, and one day he will eradicate all the bad things from our bag. We will then be free to do all that's in our heart, because all that's in our heart, all that's in our bag, will be good. Amen. I'm looking forward to that day. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful this morning. We have much to be thankful for. We thank you for your grace, your common grace that is upon all of our lives and all the world. Lord, our very next breath is gift to us. It is grace. It is not deserved. Lord, we are thankful. We're thankful for special grace that covers us as believers, that has drawn us to the Lord Jesus, that's made all things work together for our good. Lord, we thank you for this church family that you have brought uh, alongside us to love us, to grow us, to give us the practice we need with becoming more and more fluent in the gospel. Lord, we thank you that in this gospel we find joy in suffering. We find hope in loss. We find gladness in grief. Lord, may our heart's response this morning be one of fresh faith in this word we have heard, in this Christ who has conquered all for us, in this God and Father who is in control. May our hearts embrace him, and in embracing him, may we find peace and love and joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.